Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Richard Sheridan here with me from Michigan. Welcome to my podcast, Richard. Great to be here, Vesna. Thanks for inviting me in. It's great. It's great that our paths have uh, crossed. Uh, just as a short intro, uh, Rich Sheridan is a successful entrepreneur and CEO and co-founder of Menlo Innovations, a software design and development firm with an unexpected effect on their clients. 20,000 people from all over the world have visited Menlo over the past years to understand what lies behind their magic culture. So no wonder Menlo has received numerous prestigious uh, business excellence and culture awards. He's also an author of two best-selling books, Joy Inc. and uh, Chief Joy Officer. So, um, Rich, uh, I read an article in uh, Forbes based on an interview with you that talks about your company as the workplace of uh, the future. Why? Well, I love this quote from John Naisbitt. He wrote it back in 1982 in his famous book, Megatrends. And it said, the greatest advances that are going to occur in the 21st century are not going to occur because of technology, but because of a greater understanding of what it means to be human. And I think that's what people are seeing in our culture is this just upfront humanity of our team. And I think that uh, a lot of companies have come to realize that the purpose of a corporation isn't simply to enhance shareholder value, that there's there are more stakeholders involved, and that if we really engage our humans, the people who work for us every day, who choose to go to work for us, who volunteer effectively, even though they're getting paid to do it, we can really turn things around inside of our organizations if we simply learn how to engage the humans better. Mm. But I also uh, know when I really read, read up on, on your company, I, I also see that there is a very uh, strong business model and a very strong uh, way of doing things. Uh, that is like guiding people um, uh, clearly, not only the people, uh, the employees, so to say, but also the customers. They can like, they know what to expect and when things and why things are going to happen and so on. So there is a positive predictability and also it seems like a, a, a kind of a bulletproof high quality process in that sense. So how did you, like, what's the secret sauce? I guess that's what people are looking for uh, apart from, you know, the culture, of course. Yeah, I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out how do we create an intentional culture, right? And and I often differentiate between sort of the majority of companies have what I call a default culture, which is defined by who did we hire, what behaviors do we tolerate, what attitudes walked in the door this morning. And, and sometimes those default cultures can work really well for a really long time until they stop working and nobody knew what made them work before. And they don't know why it stopped and they don't know how to get back on track. Yet an intentional culture, while rare, is more powerful because the expectations are set every step along the way. So we have talked about our culture at Menlo as decidedly trying to produce joy in the world. We want to produce joy in the sense of delighting the people we intend to serve with the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. Joy is an interesting word in the context of business. We also talk about a mission to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, because there's plenty of it out there. But those have the, the possibility of simply being posters on a wall, or maybe a once-a-year rah-rah speech from the CEO. The way you get to cultural intention, the way you get to the culture you intended, is to marry your practices with your cultural intentions so that in fact you can see the why you can see the desire in everything you do. And I think that's what intrigues people about Menlo is you see it in everything we do every minute of every day. There's so many things we do that are unusual that are actually surprising and even shocking in some cases and people say, well, why do you do that? And I say, because we're trying to produce joy in the world, and this is the way we do it. 
<laughs> and uh, I guess nowadays it's easier to talk about um, joy and, and, you know, caring uh, kind of company uh, leadership style and, and all of that, right? But when you started with all of this, that was like two decades ago, right? How, how was it then? And, and was it difficult even to, you know, attract uh, employees uh, talking about these things? Or I think it was easier to attract employees talking about this than it was necessarily to convince customers that this crazy notion and the practices that fulfill it uh, are actually valuable. And of course, what they began to see was the dramatic difference in the results we were producing. And then, of course, things started to take off for us, which was delightful. Uh, but it was based on a belief system and fostered by, I will say personally for me, 20 years of pain in my previous career uh, where I was doing things the traditional way and producing very terrible results on a regular and consistent basis, almost predictably. And I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I'm going to take a stab at this new way of doing things because I believe in it. I've seen enough results for some of the early experiments I ran with it that this is what I want to do because it produces better results. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think what really fulfills employees' hearts is that when they see their work get out into the world and delight the people it's intended to serve, they feel pride in their work. They feel like they've accomplished something important. They carry that home with them. Their families can feel it. They can they're having much better conversations around the dinner table when it relates to work than they were typically having. Mm. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that kind of um, kind of positive flow that it, it brings. Absolutely. Um, because at the end of the day, we all want to achieve something that is, you know, bigger than or beyond ourselves, so to say, and be part of that notion. And, and, a, and a company or any organization for that matter is an excellent place because it's a place where, it's it's a system, so to say, that is well organized, where where you can allow such a thing to happen. So it's really, um, I think, therefore, uh, companies are in a way also a key for us to to step up uh, step up the game and also better the world in general. Uh, I believe more in that structure than in the structure of of you know politics, governments, and, and all of that. You know, and I have this fundamental belief about people in general, and it, it all relates to work. I think, number one, they are, we, are, we are wired to work hard. We are built to work hard. That's just an element of who we are as human beings, the way our bodies are constructed, the way our minds are wired. We want to work hard. Number two, we want to work collaboratively with others. We are a, we are a team-based creature. We are a tribe-based creature. We are... We are wired to work with other people. And I fundamentally believe we are wired to serve others. That our work and our work done well together, pursuing that higher, bigger than ourselves aspiration, is meant to delight others, to, to share our work with them in the hopes to make their lives better. And I think when we get our companies working like that, giving people to do meaningful work every single day, they understand its connection to the greater purpose, building a collaborative environment where they get to work together every day in a, in a team-based feeling of camaraderie and human energy as opposed to competitiveness and I'm going to get ahead of you and that sort of thing, and that they see their work actually serving others. I think that's when we get a really fun upward spiral inside of an organization. Hmm. But also I read that teamwork collaboration and pairing and so on, those concepts are, are literally not optional in your company, but they are like, that's the way you work, right? Uh, does it, does it uh, of course, I mean, maybe that's what you consider when you, when you hire people, that it fits them. Because I'm thinking about a lot of people in, in the world of programming and so on might be also introverts. So if you tell them that they have to collaborate or they have to work in pairs or whatever, how's that running? Yeah, well, I can assure you, we've not discovered all of the extroverted programmers in the world. Our team is filled with deep introverts, uh, and yet they do work together in pairs all day, every single day, two people sharing a keyboard and a mouse. Uh, during pandemic times, we're doing it much like you and I are doing it today. They're doing it remotely, but they're in 
connection with another human being all day long, solving a problem together. And what we've discovered about introversion in general isn't that introverts prefer sensory deprivation, isolation, and separation from other humans. What they really prefer are fewer, deeper, safer relationships with other people. And in our world, they get that. So I think it actually feeds into their strengths rather than pushing against them. Now, yes, it's an unusual construct to work that closely with another human being for eight hours. And so there is an adjustment period because you think of the way most corporations are formed. They, they like, well, well, let's put all of our people in sensory deprivation chambers, you know, little cubicles, and turn the lights down low and let them put headphones on and let them separate from other people. And then later lament that they lack interpersonal skills. Like, oh, shocking. You think it's because they're not talking to each other? But uh, yes, we are setting expectations right off the bat. And we don't want to be careful here. We don't select people based on some history that they have of collaborating because we'd probably find no one who's ever worked at, uh, in another company that works like us. What we do is we give them an opportunity to adjust. We want them to succeed. So we help them move into this. Now, it doesn't work for everybody. And that's okay, too. We're not trying to be all things to all people. And there's plenty of other places to work that don't work like us. So people obviously have choices in their lives. But it's amazing when you give people a chance to succeed, especially during an interview process and an onboarding process, how adaptable we human beings are when expectations are set clearly. That's true. There was also some comments that I read that I found intriguing about the concept of scaling up and scaling down. That was um, a bit particular for your, for your company. Would you elaborate on that? Absolutely. You know, it, and I'm going to dive a little bit into the world of software development that perhaps at least all of your audience is aware that that's a different kind of culture. You know, programmers working away on keyboards, sometimes late into the night. And there's a problem in the software industry that probably exists in many other places. Uh, but it is certainly true in my industry, and that is what I call a tower of knowledge problem, where you have individual people, brainy people, smart people, but they know this very narrow section of some complex system, and no one else knows what they know. And so you've got these big, complicated systems, and imagine you have big pieces and parts of this system that are all fitted together, you know, and I'll use, you know, some technical terms. You've got the database, you've got the front end, you've got the back end, you've got the secret sauce, you know, all the, all the kind of stuff people can imagine is required to build a complex piece of software. And each person has their little territory, right? And, you know, I'm talking about the way my industry is typically formed, not the way Menlo does it. So just compare and contrast. So you have all these silos of knowledge, all these towers of knowledge. And imagine, um, you know, there's a number of different scenarios to imagine, but imagine more work arrives. And this team has to get more done in a shorter period of time. They have to go faster. They have to get more done. What is the option? The only option in that hero-based environment is overtime. It's the only way to scale a hero-based organization is start working more hours. So, you know, you go maybe from 45 hours a week suddenly to 55 hours a week, to 60 hours a week, to 70 hours a week. Now, for anybody who's ever worked that number of hours in a work week, it's tiring. When you're doing mental activity like programming, that tired feeling turns into defects, into bugs. You start producing lower quality at that higher pace of work. And now you're doubling down on a, on a problem that's going to create a serious negative silo, a negative effect, a negative spiral. Because now you've got these tired people effectively doing bad work and they know it but they're being pushed to hit a deadline. And then when it finally delivers, which is probably late past the deadline, there's been an inordinate amount of managerial pressure to get this thing out the door. And then it hits the market and all the customers start complaining. What are they complaining about? They're complaining about all those defects that were put in during that scale up of overtime, all the problems that occurred because tired people were making bad software. 
And now all those poor, tired people that hoped that they could get a little bit of rest while, um, you know, while the product got done and got shipped. Now their work doubles again because all the phones are ringing off the hook with problems. And now they're being reminded every day, oh, you know what? You did really crappy work seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago, nine weeks ago. And it sucks, right? And it becomes this downward spiral. And people wonder why programmers get so cranky, right? So in our world, we have a very simple formula. It starts with pairing people together. So no work is done by an individual. Two people sharing a keyboard and a mouse. We switch those pairs every five days. So there's this constant sharing of information. But imagine the trick that can be done when you work like this. If I have four people working together for several months on a project, and so you, with four people, you have three pairings you can do with these four, right? It's like a little square dance. And so after about six months, let's say, these, this team is you know, pretty facile in all of the technology. There are no towers of knowledge. And let's say the customer comes to us and says, you got to go faster. We can double the size of the team overnight. We bring four new people in. We pair them in with the four that are already there so that you have a basis of continuity of knowledge, of continuity of understanding. So no new person is coming in working on something they've never seen before. They've got a, they've got a guide right there with them. And now you've got eight people doing the work. So you've literally doubled the size of the team. And now you're going nearly twice as fast. And, and we've seen this so often, I can confidently say that's what's happening. And so, you know, what I always tell people is if we get behind, if, we have, if we're pushed to meet a deadline, we don't have to work overtime. We just add more people. And you're like, well, how can you do that? Like, it's pretty trivial. I just described it. Now, the other aspect of scaling that nobody ever thinks about is how do you scale a project down? Right. If you have those four towers of knowledge, you know, the database person, the middleware, the front end, the back end person, the secret sauce person or something like that. Which person can you give up to scale a team back? You can't give up any of them because nobody knows what that person knows. So these teams kind of get stuck. They have to stay the same size for such a long period of time. And quite frankly, humans get bored doing the same thing every day, day in and day out. They want to go do the fun new stuff. They want to work on new projects. They want to learn new things. So this ability to both scale up when the need is there and to scale down because our four could go to two, but those two, because they've been pairing around for the last six months, they know the whole system. So two people, you can scale the team back down to half of its size, but they still have the broad knowledge of the whole system. Very, very uh, valuable and interesting. And I'm just thinking there's a lot of different roles and, and dep departments, so to say, in different uh, companies that could apply this kind of uh, setup, right? Well, and, and the interesting thing, because people always ask me, well, what other industries could work like this? You see it in uh, pilots. I mean, tell me if you would ever stay on an airplane, if you looked up, you know, you kind of leaned out in the aisleway and you looked up front and you said, hey, where's the co-pilot? You know, well, he's called in sick today. Like, oh, no, 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 no. We're only going to fly this if there are two people up there. <laughs> so you're, you're like pulling the emergency door off and throwing it aside and climbing out on the wing because you're not going to get on. You're not going to let them take off with you in the plane if there's only one pilot up front. Doctors, it is very common to have surgeons and parasurgeons, nurses and paranurses, anesthesiologists and paranesthesiologists because people's lives are at stake. Firefighters, police officers. I mean, there are so parents of teenagers. <laughs> there are so many places when lives are at stake where we put two people and quite frankly, in software, lives are at stake because software holds the lives of people in its hands, right? Their financial lives, their medical lives, their, you know, sometimes if the software is driving their car or flying their plane or keeping track of the air traffic control system, there are people's lives being held in the hands of that software. And Quality is very important. Yeah, that's true to be reminded of what it is used for. And you're doing a lot of business-to-business -business, um, uh, appli software applications. Uh, so, Rich, going back to you then, what would you say is uh, your passion? You know, that thing that um, uh, you're also willing to, you know, sacrifice a lot of things for if needed. 
Well, when you ask it like that, um, for me, it's family. You know, that, that is the, you know, I remember um, there was this, you know, this picture somebody drew once that says, let's define your top priorities. You know, if you if there was a beam between two high buildings in a downtown with the wind blowing and there was something on the other side that you were willing to crawl out on that beam, walk across the beam to get to, what would it be? You know, and I could imagine, you know, any of my children, something, even though the whole route would terrify me. Um, but, you know, those kind of things are uh, just critically important to me. I think when I think of it in the context of my work life, um, I go back to a story. One of the things in, on my business card is chief storyteller. So it'd probably be um, important to tell, share at least one story here because I think it'll get to the heart of your question. When I was 10 years old, my uh, mom and dad uh, bought a bookshelf, much like what you'd get from Ikea today. So it was in a box out in the garage. Mom was very excited about having this new bookshelf in the living room. And uh, they went out to dinner in a movie one night. I was left on my own. It was fine. I was 10 years old. I was perfectly capable of taking care of myself. But for some reason in my head, I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build that bookshelf. So I went out in the garage and I put it together. And it was about eight feet wide and about six feet tall. And at least that's how I remember it. I was 10, so it's probably smaller than that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was so excited to show them because, you know, this was like the work I had done for them. And then I thought, oh, wait, no, mom wants it in the house. She wants it in the living room. I built it in the garage. So over the next hour, I inched that thing out of the house, down the sidewalk, or out of the garage, down the sidewalk, into the house, put it right in the living room where mom and dad wanted it. Set up dad's books, mom's knickknacks, and wired up the stereo. And when they walked in the door, I had my mom's favorite album playing, and she cried. For me, that is the definition of joy, personally. This idea of the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds serving others. And so everything I think about in the way we've constructed our company, the way we deliver our results to our customers, who we think about when we're doing our work, which quite frankly is not the people who pay us, but the people who ultimately will use the work the end users of the software who don't even know who we are and we don't know who they are in large numbers and they will never know we did the work. But if we can get them to say, I love this software, that is where our joy comes from as a team. So everything we're wired in is around that central concept of service to others with delight and producing joy in the world with our work. And I think back to that 10 year old story of that moment where it wasn't just the building of it. It was in the delight of serving my mom in particular. And then there was this day where I had taken my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, to work with me. I would just become a VP. And uh, it was our school system has this take your child to work day program so that you can expose kids to the careers of their parents. So I took my daughter in to watch me work. She's eight. She's going to watch a VP work all day. Can you imagine a more boring day than watching a vice president work all day? Like, oh, my dad does email all day long. I can't wait to get into the work world. Like, what, what on earth is she going to see, right? So wisely, because she was a smart kid, still is, <laughs> uh, she brought her coloring books, crayons, and stickers with her. And she just worked at my task table all day long, you know, watching her dad work while she's coloring and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I thought, you know, I better ask her what she saw because her teacher's going to ask tomorrow anyways. So I said, Sarah, what, you know, what did you learn today? What did you see? Oh, my. She said something that literally changed me from that day forward. She said, what I saw, Dad, is you're really important here. I said, what? She goes, yeah, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Now, she was very proud. I was instantly mortified because, number one, she was right. You know, she said, well, what I saw, Dad, was all these people lined up outside your door, coming in one after another, asking you. They were looking for you to make a decision so they could go off and do something. And in that moment, she convicted me because what she said was, Dad, you've created a hero-based organization, and you're the number one hero. 
They can't live without you. And of course, again, she was proud, but I looked at her in this moment. She's eight. And I'm looking ahead over the next 10 years. And my heart said, I don't want to miss the best parts of being a dad. Because the only way to scale a hero-based organization is to scale the heroes. And the only way to scale the heroes is overtime. And I wasn't going to be spending time with that little girl as she grew up. And I knew in that moment, if there was going to be a change in the world, uh, what I thought was a better way of leading, that change had to begin in here, in my heart. It had to become my personal change before I could affect the other changes I needed to make. And literally things started changing from that point forward. That was 1997. By 2001, I'd made dramatic changes in the company I worked for. And all those changes became the basis for Menlo Innovation. So we've been running now for 20 years. Mm. <laughs> Fantastic. Kids are always, um, when you really listen, uh, there's a lot lot to learn, but we're always kind of typically rushed and, and kind of, yeah, distracted. Um, and what about long-term solutions for businesses? Um, is there a, like a formula that you believe in? Well, I think the problems that businesses face today are so complex that the only way we can solve those problems is to get teams of human beings working together. There are no roles anymore for individual heroes. We now need teamwork. And teamwork is hard. That's why there's so many books written on it. That's why Patrick Lencioni has this wonderful career of five dysfunctions of a team, the ideal team player and the advantage and all that sort of thing. And so how do we get to teamwork? Well, teamwork is you know built on people working together in collaboration with one another. Well, that's going to require relationships. And relationships are built on trust. And trust is built on spending time together. And most of our corporate organizations are so focused on individual performance, right? Now imagine this. So you're in a company you know, it's, it's, this is easy to imagine because I'm guessing when I say what I'm about to say, everybody in your audience will say, well, wait a minute, he's talking about our company. So in a typical work year, let's say, you know, 52 weeks a year, five days of work a week, that's 260 days of work per year. Now, assuming vacations and holidays, it's a few less, but let's just go with 260 for now. 259 of those days. What you hear from people like me, the top leaders, the CEO, the director of a department or a division, teamwork, teamwork, teamwork. You have these fun posters on the wall with people rowing boats and that sort of thing, all these motivational posters and everything. And you just hear teamwork. Teamwork does the job. Teamwork is what we're going to. And then that other day when the door closes and you are one-on-one -on -one with your boss, to have your annual performance review and you go through all of the little sections, what are they talking about? Individual performance goals. And then finally, and you've been waiting for this moment for a year, they give you, I don't know if it works this way in Italy, but in the United States, this is so common people, you know, they all use it. It's like you either get one of two grades at the end of it, either meets expectations or exceeds expectations. And if you get meets expectations, you get one raise. If you get exceeds expectations, you get a higher raise. It's usually not that much, but humans are weird. They'll, they'll you know, <laughs> they all want the high rating, right? And, you know, you're going in thinking, this is the year. I, you know, I did it. You know, and then the boss says, well, you're only 3.7% of you can get exceeds expectations this year. And, you know, you had one five years ago. But the message delivered in that is, oh, no, heck with all that teamwork stuff. How did you perform versus your peers? And so that one day washes away the other 259 in an instant. Because you walk out that room saying to yourself, I don't have to outrun the tiger. I just have to outrun you. I'm going to make all my peers look bad so the next time I'm there, 
when we compare individual performance, I'm going to look better than you. And so that destroys the opportunity for that teamwork that we absolutely need to work on the world's hardest problems. And then we wonder, why are we failing? Why are we, why are we not getting done what we thought? Why are people so despondent here? Why do we have such disengagement in our teams? It's because we set them in competition with one another rather than collaboration with one another. Yeah, and in general, I think business, I mean, is, is, is and should be an, a system that serves like an infinite mindset. It's not about one year or one quarter or whatever we are measured upon. It's, it's, it's the whole the whole system. So it's a lot about mindset and so on. So it's more like if you have a leader who has the right mindset, has the right maybe life experience that brings them a certain amount of wisdom and insight, then they're going to lead the company in the right direction. But you, as one of the people, uh, what power do we have? Or, or, or I think that we could work in our own kind of way and, and create change anyways and not like feel like we are victims of a situation or of a certain person. But I know it's hard. But what do you think? Well, I remember when I made the big changes I did it as a VP back at my old company. They were risky changes, no question. And they worked. There was no guarantee that they would work. It was, they were crazy new ideas back then that, that now are such, you know, sort of publicly known components of Menlo. People are, oh, you always knew they'd work. Oh, no, I didn't. I had no idea these things would work. But one of my programmers came into me after it was clearly working, right? This was six months of dramatic transformation inside this old, tired public company. And he looks at me and goes, how'd you do it? And I think he was literally trying to take away lessons for himself. Like, if I'm ever in a similar situation in the future, would I have made the same decisions Rich made this time? And he was like looking for some magic formula. He's like, Rich, you had no idea this was going to work out this well. I said, that's true. And he said, but you were willing to put everything on the line for this change. He said, Rich, you already had the title. You had the authority. You had the stock options. You had the paycheck. You were willing to risk everything for this change, even if you didn't know it was going to work. And he says, I don't get it. How did you do that? And I said, well, David, it was actually quite easy. He's like, really? I said, well, let me tell you. I said, you're looking at all the external stuff. And I get it. But let me tell you where I was at. I was dying inside. I looked ahead and I said, I can't do this another 30 years and survive. I said, I wasn't running towards risk, David. I was running away from risk. The risk I had was my flame was going to go out. I was going to lose heart and I was going to just become one of those empty holes of people that are just going to work every day and finding their joy elsewhere. And this is where I spend most of my waking hours. So I said, once I crossed that bridge in my mind, that this was not a run towards risk, this was a run towards safety, my personal safety, I said, it became an easy decision. And I would say nowadays also people who are literally, you know, investing in different companies and so on, they're also looking at that risk. They want people, right, that have that flame uh, or that passion that you were talking about, that motivation. You know, there's uh, only there's only four things left for us humans. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about AI and machine learning and the robots are coming and they're going to replace us humans. There's four things we will never be replaced on. Creativity, imagination, innovation, and invention. And if we think about the part of our brain where that comes from, that amazing prefrontal cortex we have here. That is the part of the brain that literally shuts down when we are afraid. And so if we create fear-based management systems, which most of them are, we literally rob the humanity from our team and we fall short in every dimension of our companies on those four qualities of creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. And yet, what is every company clamoring for? We have to be more innovative. We have to be like Apple. We have to be like, you know, mm. and they'd go out, you know, Amazon, we got to take risks. Like, really? Because mm. your fear-based management system is robbing that part from all of your humans and your team. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. 
But if you would assume that you have all doors open and all kinds of resources available to you right now, uh, is there anything you would immediately rush to go innovate or or change, you know, be it in, within your world, so to say, or, or elsewhere? Well, I, I have to say my personal mission from when I was a kid is one day I want to help build the Starship Enterprise. I think there's going to be a lot of software on that Starship, and I want to be there helping it happen. So <laughs> if there's anybody in the science uh, space programs out there that needs software help on their space programs, give us a call. But I, you know, I generally, genuinely believe that this mission that so many of us are on, you and me included, and that's why we're talking, is this idea that culture, positive culture, this is not a zero-sum game. You know, a lot of people ask me about joy. They're like, how much does joy cost? (laughs) It's like, really? Like, you think there's like a negative you know, that this like takes away from the bottom line. Yeah. I remember one time a large life insurance company made a dramatic change based on a talk I gave. They started running new experiments and there they invited me back to show me the changes they made. This was a 180 year old life insurance company. And Amy, the VP of claims of this life insurance company said, Rich, we're going to go look at the claims department. He said, when we get there, you're going to see helium balloons on people's desks. And I said, well, are you celebrating something? She goes, no. In your talk, you said run the experiment, try things rather than take action versus take a meeting. So we took your took your, took your you to your word. We started running experiments. So when you see the helium balloons, that's a declaration from the person sitting at that desk that I'm running an experiment. Come ask me about it. Well, Dustin, when I turned the corner and we walked into this $3 billion a year claims processing facility, there were balloons as far as the eye could see. This was six months after my talk. They'd made this amount of change inside of a 180-year-old life insurance company. Now, I don't know about Italy, but we don't have too many 180-year-old companies in the United States. (laughs) The post office is older than that. That's about it. And so I walked up to one of the balloons because you remember the invitation was, I'm running an experiment, come ask me about it. I talked to Susan. I said, Susan, tell me about your experiment. She said, well, I'm in charge of quality. I'm the last stop before the checks get written to the beneficiaries. I have to do three steps, A, B, and C. My experiment is, I change the order. I do A, C, and then B. I said, well, why? She said, well, if I find a mistake at step C, I have to go back and redo step B, and that's the longest part of the process, and I can change the order and save myself a lot of work. And she is just like beaming with energy. And I asked her, I said, Susan, how long have you worked here? She goes, 19 years. And I said, have you always been like this? And her face turned into a scowl. And she said, no, I hated my job. I hated coming to work every day. I couldn't stand the thought of being in. I was counting the days to retirement. I said, what's different now? She says, now we can run experiments. I said, what was it like before? She said, Rich, every idea I ever had had to go up five levels, over, down five levels. She said, every idea I ever had died on the vine. And she said, after a while, you just stop bringing ideas. After a while, you say, you know, it's just a job. I'll find my joy elsewhere. After a while, it's like, I'm just going to count the days through retirement. She says, now I love my job. She says, I can't wait to get here. Best I'm looking across this room, and there are probably 200 balloons taped to people's desks. There were probably 200 stories at least as good as Susan's. And I'm thinking to myself, that was just simply a fundamental act of leadership on the part of Amy who ran this division. And this all happened inside of the context of a 180-year-old life insurance company. And my simple message to your listeners is, if they can do it, so can you. <laughs> Yeah, it's not easy. It does require courage and conviction and trying new things. But I think, you know, your team is ready for it and you are ready for it. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. It's really about trusting people and trusting their judgment and and, I mean, giving them, you know, direction and and all of that uh, and a framework and so on. But then let go. Um, So but if you if you could give like one, you know, piece of advice to, to leaders who are listening, what is that main advice? You know, I think a lot of us in our work lives, we we tend to leave our dreams at home. 
We don't bring them to work with us, even at top leadership positions. And I'm not talking about the dreams of great wealth or, you know, or, or uh, you know, fame or, you know, or that sort of thing. I'm just talking about what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person did you dream you always could be? And I think we knew. I, I think, you know, I didn't think about the story of the, my 10-year-old building that bookshelf when I was pursuing my career. I didn't even think about that when I was writing books and giving talks on joy in the context of work. But one day somebody came to me and they said, Rich, where does your joy come from? And at first I thought it was the technological thing, the, the building tough software and getting it out to the market. And I thought, no, it's not really it. And then it was like almost like a gift given back to me when I thought about that story of the 10-year-old delighting my mom. We all have that story hiding inside of us somewhere. If you want to know who you were meant to be, go ask a 10-year-old, your 10-year-old. Go reach back into your life story and say, what did I dream about being when I was a kid? And I don't mean doctor, lawyer, dentist, you know, that kind of thing. What kind of person did you dream you wanted to be? What did you admire in others? Where did you see some leader in your life and say, boy, I wish I could be more like them? Because you know what? You can be. Yeah. I was wondering if I can ask my 20-year-old son uh, <laughs> that question. <laughs> you know, I think there's a wisdom gear that kicks in for all of us that happens when we're sort of in our 40s and 50s. So your 20-year-old son may not know yet. He's working on it. He doesn't even know he's working on it because it's like this little wisdom gear being chiseled away in his brain while he sleeps every night. Because I'll tell you, I mean, at least for me, life got a lot simpler when I got older. I could see things more clearly than I could when I was young. Everything looked complicated. Everything looked hard. Everything looked complex. Now it looks a lot simpler. You know, words like love and family and joy come to mind for me now. And for whatever reason, the noise is a lot less and the clarity is a lot higher. And do, do you think the clarity comes from what we call life experience or something else? I, th I think it's two things. One is, I think, again, back to that idea that we are wired to serve others. And so we're, we're working away in this little gear. And then there's all these, you know, quite frankly, probably most of our life experiences are negative ones, right? You know, something that happened, we remember those negative things more often than we remember the positive things. But every once in a while, there's this little flash of something where we're like, you know, and maybe you felt it when you like, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and, um, you know, just like in that twilight of sleep where you're almost awake and you're not quite asleep and you have this thought in your head that about some new idea you have and so on. And then it kind of disappears like the morning fog because the, the cacophony of your day kicks in the, the, the emails, the, the meetings, the, the phone calls and everything else. I would just encourage your listeners to remember those thoughts, write them down, uh, because those are the most important ones. Those are the ones who are reminding you of who you wanted to be when you were 10. And you've had those negative experiences and you've had those positive insights uh, or experiences and your brain is just sorting through them. And I think the sorting mechanism is really important. I think typically the sorting mechanism is actually fueled by many of the negative experiences. I know it was for me. When I had a bad experience with a boss, my brain said, you know what? Someday you're going to be in that person's seat. Don't be like him or don't be like her. I just learned how I don't want to be a boss because I know what it felt like to work for a boss like that. And I don't want to be an idiot like that person. <laughs> so, um, and so I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're all working on that. It is formulated by our experiences, but I think there's this core inside of us that was driven, that is driven by our inner 10 year old when we had big dreams about what we wanted to do when we were looking up at clouds in the sky and seeing imaginary dinosaurs and that sort of thing. But we can't forget that part of us. I just happened to, um, I don't know how it came about, but just like before our, our talk now, uh, I got a message from a friend with a quote and it says, everything you are is waiting for you on the other side of self-belief. <laughs> so 
uh, I mean, d- d- irregardless of, of age, there is always this um, ghost of, of, of self-belief, you know, how, to what extent do we believe in ourselves and how much fear or anxiety or whatever driven our reality is um, and our own mindset and, and our own, you know, capacity to kind of respect and love ourselves, how much that is. And we all know how important it is. And still, sometimes even at, at this kind of uh, uh, age now where I am, sometimes I can also get this kind of uh, uh, question, you know, like, can I believe in myself to this extent? Can I do that? Right. So I don't know if you experienced that after everything you've gone through, but. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, do I have an inner negative voice? You bet. I mean, I think we all do. Uh, I love that quote from Viktor Frankl that said, you know, between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. If we see an opportunity, the question is, do we pursue it? And that's usually when the self-doubt kicks in. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't have time for that. Uh, I don't know how I would do that. I've never done anything like that before. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, the saddest part, I think, in our education system is um, if you if you ask a room full of kindergartners, how many of you are artists? 100% of the hands go up. 100% of kindergartners believe they're artists. First grade, 80% of hands go up. Second grade, 50%. Third grade, 10%. By fourth or fifth grade, maybe one person timidly raises their hand. Like, what happened? How did we drive that artistry out of our kids? And I will, I would have been one of those kids who were like, mm, no. And it dawned on me after I wrote two books, books that people seem to enjoy and books that I'm proud of, books that I read myself and I'm still moved by some of the words that I came up with and you know as, a, as an author and finally I was at an event where somebody asked that question I said how many of you are artists and I was about to you know I wasn't about to raise my hand I thought no wait writing is art and I just said yep I'm an artist and that was a neat feeling and I had to overcome a whole bunch of obstacles I always wanted to write a book that was a dream of mine How many of us die with those dreams unfulfilled? I've gotten to do it twice now. And I will tell you, it wasn't easy. It was a lot of things along the way that I could have said, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm not sure how to do it. I'll probably make a lot of mistakes along the way, which I did. And I had people around me that helped me in that process. I think optimism is a fundamental choice of leadership. And it's hard. Optimism is way harder than pessimism. Right. Because if you say, oh, no, it'll never work out. We're going to we're doomed. We're going to go out of business. The stock market is going to crash and all the things, you know, the virus is going to kill us all or something like that. Hey, those are easy predictions. Right. And nobody's going to hold you accountable. But if you say, you know what, we're going to get through this. We're going to be OK. We're going to come out stronger on the other side. People are like, ah, <laughs> you know, I'll prove to him that's not true. You know, no, you that choice, that optimistic choice is not easy. But it is an act of leadership. I heard this quote about leadership the other day. I just loved it. It said, leadership, the evidence of leadership is some group, company, team, department, they got to a place where they got to was because of your influence in their lives. That they got to a different place because of your leadership than they would have gotten to on their own. That's a really neat definition of leadership. And I think optimism plays a a, a big role. And, uh, you know, and I think that, um, you know, optimism in our work lives can be based simply on the, uh, the belief that the people who work for us come to work with good intent. Don't assume bad things about people. You know, uh, you know, we always like, well, you like the experiment thing that mass mutual or, you know, the, the insurance company, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, that was trusting your people that they're going to do the right thing. You assume good intent. And also the optimistic belief that if things don't go the way we planned, we've got other systems in place that can help us recover from them. So it isn't like everything has to come true the way you predicted, but you've already built systems in place that if things go awry, 
you know, I could tell you, we were planning on 2020 being our best year ever. Whew, were we wrong? <laughs> it's like our revenues dropped 60% during this time. And it's like, you know, what do you do then? Well, you gather the team together, you figure it out, you figure it out together, and now we're thriving again. Yeah, this definitely been a special year for every single person. If anything, this virus is very democratic. It's all over the places. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really? been a long time since the yeah. planet has experienced a uh, a common enemy, <laughs> like worldwide, right? We, very seldom do we have shared experiences these days, like the one we just had over the last year. Mm. Do you think this is going to be, to use big words, unify humanity in some way? Um, it's definitely had everybody, you know, reflect on their life and purpose and all of these things, obviously, unless you run away from it. But people have been really have forced to be also innovative and creative and maybe even come up with um, lifestyles or life work uh, that is even better than before. So there's all kinds of um, things on the on the scale. But what have you personally taken away so far from this experience? Yeah, and I, I want to be careful too to not make it sound like sunshine and rainbows here with what we've all gone through because some people have experienced tremendous loss, either personal life loss, uh, you know, of, of a loved one or their, or their business was destroyed and they're now in a very difficult economic position. And I, I can certainly feel for everyone. And I hope, uh, and we're seeing a little bit of evidence of this, that, you know, our governmental systems are exercising some compassion for how many people were affected so negatively by what's happened. Uh, because, you know, this is a time we all need each other. We need to support the people who have gone through the tough times. Uh, for me personally, this has been absolutely transformational. I'm a guy that has spent 20 years talking about a particular way of working, principles and practices so married together, and suddenly everything pulled apart in working in a way we've never worked before that I didn't even believe in. And I wondered whether Menlo could survive. And I probably spent the first eight weeks of the pandemic, probably like a lot of people saying, how soon can we get back to the way things were? I mean, it's only going to be a few weeks, right? And then it finally dawned on me, it's going to be a long time. And I had to change yet again. I had to become a different kind of thinker. I had to think about things differently. I had to become an entrepreneur again. And I'm an old guy now, and I wasn't sure I was ready for that. And then I got excited again. And what's interesting now is I think about call it post-pandemic Menlo. Remember I said I was an optimist. Uh, <laughs> um, we're going to be different again. I, I'm not assuming at all that I know what Menlo is going to look like post-pandemic or that we're going to try and return to as much ways as the way we used to do things. It's been too long. We've learned too much. My belief systems have fundamentally changed about a lot of things that I didn't think would work and I found out they did. And so I'm excited about what comes next, and I have no idea what it is. And I think that probably a lot of us are in the same position right now. And, you know, and a lot of us, we don't like uncertainty. Humans aren't good at that. Stock markets don't like uncertainty. You know, politics doesn't like uncertainty. We are living in probably some of the most uncertain times that I will ever see in my lifetime. And it's an exciting opportunity to try new ways of working, new ways of thinking. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm enthused again. I'm excited again. I'm energized again. <laughs> and that's a, it's a neat place to be when you're 63 years old. So what do you think now that is the absolutely most important thing that companies should focus on? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, it, recognizing the tough times we've been through, um, I think my co-founder has this great expression and I love it at times like this. Right now, we're all going through a really tough time, personally and professionally. Menlo's had a tough year, and we're coming out of it. I think it's important that we look at that journey that we've all been through collectively for over the last year as a mountain climb. We've been climbing up a really tough mountain. We don't actually know how much farther we have because mountain climbing is an interesting thing, right? Sometimes you get up to what you believe is the peak and you find out, oh, no, now I can see that the next higher peak is suddenly in view, right? 
And in that hard work, I think it's really important for all of us, but particularly us as leaders, to do what you should do when you're climbing a mountain. Stop. Turn around. Look back down. Take a breath. Enjoy the view. And revel in how far you've come and how much work you expended to get there. Now, then we have to turn around and get climbing again for sure. But I think it's important for us to recognize where have we come from? How did we get here? What did we learn? And what are the benefits that came out of this terrible time? And because they're, they're there, we will, we will recognize them. We will see that we've engaged our humans better perhaps than we ever have. We've, you know, I think there's a casualness to work. You know, if, if either one of us had cats at home, they probably would have joined us in this conversation, right? <laughs> cats love to get between their owners and a camera. Um, you know, if we have kids at home, they might, you know, in the old days, the kids would interfere with these kind of calls, and now we embrace that. And I think this idea that, you know, we should be looking at the entire human, not just the work human, is a really important part of what we've learned in the last year. So my final question to you is, if possible, even bigger. What do you think the world needs most at this time? You know, I think it feels like there's so many things that are separating us now. Yeah, that we're just at odds with one another and we're afraid. And I think the at the end of the day, we need to recognize that all of us have the same hopes and dreams as each other. We want to, you know, if, we, if, we're, if we have a family, we want to protect them. We want to raise them. We want to love them. Uh, if we're in a community, we want to be proud of it. Um, we want to be able to do good work. Uh, we want to be able to, uh, you know, take care of ourselves. We want to feel like uh, there are opportunities for us. Uh, you know, and I think if we could if we could get to the place where we could recognize the things that bring us together rather than the differences that divide us, uh, we probably have a grand opportunity to really um, change the world in a very positive way. Uh, you know, we're, we're more connected now than we've ever been. You know, I think, you know, it, it probably all of us recognize now that the one thing that probably died during the pandemic are voice calls. You know, we, we now all almost always do video calls. You know, in the past, you and I might have done this, and I would have never seen you. you know, I would have never seen the the where you live, and uh, you know, and and your beautiful smile, and you know, and and you know how your face lights up when you hear something or say something. I mean, those are really important qualities, and I think we're going to get we have this opportunity to get to know other people. Well, you know, I can remember my dad worked for General Motors and uh, it was a good job, but it wasn't a really well-paying job. So we had a good life, but it wasn't like we could do a lot of things. And uh, But because of his position, there were a lot of people coming from around the world that he would meet from all different parts of the world where General Motors was doing business. And he would bring them home for dinner. I remember... Haruk Baruch from Turkey and uh, uh, people from India and people from Guyana. And they would come and they would sit at our dinner table and we would just have this delightful conversation with them. And I was a kid, you know, and I don't think I thought too much about it at the time. It just seemed normal to me that we'd have all these international visitors to our house. And, of course, you find out that, you know, people were more the same than we are different. And I think that's an important recognition. My dad later told me, he said, you know, Richie, he says, we couldn't, um, we couldn't afford to go to all those places. I couldn't have afforded to, you know, to get the family on airplanes. So he says, I brought the world to us. And I think that, uh, I think that's an opportunity we have right now. Ultimately, all of us should be walking around thinking to ourselves, how do I leave this world a better place than I found it? Yeah, totally. I agree. So thank you so much, uh, Richard. Thanks for your time and for sharing everything. Uh, just curious, how, how did you feel to be uh, on this episode? This felt like such a comfortable, easy conversation. 
between two people who have big hearts for the same things in life. So I really appreciate you having me on and asking the questions you asked and uh, giving me the space to go off in a whole bunch of different directions, some that I haven't thought about for a while. I, there were was, there was some hard questions in this, ones I really had to think about. So I really appreciate you doing that. <laughs> Thank you. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Rich. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Rich. Ciao.